0: This podcast is a production of WCWP. LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs. Listen live or support by visiting wcwp.org. This is Anand Dhani and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Walter Block. He is the Harold E. Worth Eminent Scholar and Endowed Chair and Professor of Economics at Loyola University in New Orleans. He is also a Senior Fellow at the Mises Institute in Auburn, Alabama. Well known for his work in libertarianism, he has written Defending the Unfen- Undefendable, The Privatization of Roads and Highways, and Yes to Ron Paul and Liberty, as well as many other books, essays, and articles. He's one of my heroes and has been vital to my conversion from conservatism to libertarianism, so I want to welcome Professor Block to the show.
1: Thank you. Uh, you're very kind. That's a lovely introduction.
0: Okay, so when did you first get into libertarianism? What was your career like?
1: Well, I first got into it, I was, uh, uh, let me see, I I went to high school with Bernie Sanders, and I had roughly the same views as he did. And... um then we we overlapped for four years at high school and then one year at Brooklyn College. And Ayn Rand came to Brooklyn College uh, about a year after he left. I might have been a sophomore or a junior. And I came to boo and hiss her because she favored free enterprise, which everyone knew was you know horrible. And I booed and hissed her because she favored capitalism. And afterward, the Ayn Rand study group, the group that had invited her to speak, Uh, said there was a lunch in her honor, and anyone could attend, even if you disagreed with her. So I went there, and there was this long, long table, maybe 50 people on a side, and she was sitting at the head of the table, and I was relegated to the foot of the table, and I turned to my neighbor and I said, this capitalism is no good, socialism is the way to go. And he said, well, I don't really know that much about it, but the people who do are at the other end of the table. So I went and I stuck my head between Ayn Rands and Nathaniel Brandon's and I said, there's someone who wants to debate you on socialism and capitalism. And Brandon said, who is it? And I said, me. And uh, he said, well, you know, you can't sit here. There's no room here. But I'll come to the other end of the table and talk to you about it on two conditions. One, you promise to continue this until we settle it, not just end it with one shot. And two, read two books that I'll recommend. Well, to make a long story short, he recommended Atlas Shrugged and Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. And I read the books, and I went to his and Ayn Rand's house for oh, four, six, eight times, I forget how many, and I was converted. I was now a, uh, not a Randian, but a free enterpriser, a, a libertarian, not an anarcho-capitalist, yet. That took Murray Rothbard. But I was uh, sort of a free marketer, uh, uh similar to Ayn Rand or Milton Friedman at that point.
0: So what do you think is the essence of libertarianism?
1: Uh, the essence of libertarianism are three, I think. One is the non-aggression principle. You keep your midst to yourself uh, and without uh, permission of other people. Uh, don't grab them or their property. Uh, Uh, Libertarian is a theory of law, not a theory of what's nice or what's right or what's moral. It's just a theory of what the law should be. And what the law should be is no one should be allowed to initiate violence against other people or their property. For example, uh, no murder, uh, slavery, uh, rape, theft, whatever. The second principle is private property rights based on homesteading, uh, John Locke. You mix your labor with the land and you uh, get to own property. And the third one is uh, free association. No one should be forced to associate with anyone else against their will. That's the big problem. The only problem with rape and slavery is... the. Uh The uh, rapist and the slave master uh, want to associate with the rape victim and the slave, and and the rape victim and the slave don't want to associate with him. So no one should be forced to associate with anyone against their will. For example, we've got these cases where gays are now telling bakers and and florists and uh, photographers that they they have to um, officiate at their weddings. This would be a violation of free association because the uh, photographer and the baker and the Florists just don't want to associate with them, and they shouldn't be forced to. So that, in a nutshell, in my view, is what libertarianism is all about.
0: That sounds very simple, and in some ways we kind of embody it in our own personal lives to some extent, yet as a political theory, it's very hard for people to accept, and why do you think that is?
1: That's a very good question, a very important question. Why, if libertarianism is so reasonable, why... Why are we so few? Why are we 1% or 2 or 3% of the populace? My explanation for that is we are hardwired sociobiologically uh, uh, toward benevolence and not toward um, an appreciation of free enterprise. Uh, When we were in the caves or the trees or wherever we were in a million years ago, benevolence is very important. If you took care of me this week when I was sick, and I took care of you next week when you're sick, our tribe would survive. So uh, if you didn't have that sort of benevolence, you tended to die out. So we're very hardwired for benevolence. But are we hardwired for uh, the benefits of trade? Well, not really. Uh, that came much, much later, maybe 10,000 years ago. So when I get students and uh, I talk about price gouging, they're horrified. You know, you can't price gouge. and And yet I try to teach them that if we allow prices to rise during an emergency, uh, more supplies will be forthcoming and everyone will economize on on what they use. And it's a hard struggle to get them to appreciate that. Why? I think because they're not hardwired to appreciate it. They're hardwired for benevolence and charity, yes, but they're not hardwired to understand the... uh, intricacies of uh, the free enterprise system. So that's why I think that we uh, libertarians is sort of like pushing the rock of Sisyphus up the mountain and it keeps rolling down. Uh, So I hate to be so pessimistic, but I want to account for why, given that not only is this theory so correct and so obviously true, uh, but we have uh, spokesmen who uh, are very articulate, Ron Paul, uh, Murray Rothbard, Ayn Rand. And yet, and yet, you know, we've convinced, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4% of the population, 5%. Uh, so I have to, as a social scientist, try to explain why this is. And I think this is a reasonable explanation. We are bucking against biology. Uh, does that mean that we shouldn't try? Well, I try. I try to promote liberty uh, and good economics. Because I love it, I can't think of anything else that would give me as much satisfaction. Can't think of anything else that would give me one millionth as much satisfaction as that. So I, uh, I urge people who are free enterprises to keep promoting it, and let's go from three to four percent. But to realize that uh, this is why. Um, This is why we're not succeeding as much as we'd like, and maybe this will prevent burnout. Burnout is, you know, you've tried it for three or four years, and you don't see any movement in the overall uh, population, and you just burn out. Well, this might be an antidote to burnout, namely realizing, you know, just what a Herculean task we have in front of us, and why there are so many people that just won't listen uh, to this eminently reasonable philosophy.
0: And I want to mention that also branding and personal interests get in the way of adopting libertarianism. For example, with branding, it's been like a commonplace in some circles that libertarianism as a movement is too degenerate, too leftist, too pot-loving, too gun-loving. And that if we moderated these things and became more conservative, we'd be more popular among the normie Americans. The normie being those who are like normal Americans who have like normal quote-unquote political views and normal sentiments and tastes. And my personal answer to that is, I don't necessarily think we should brand ourselves to become more conservative. If we are trying to appeal to normal Americans, we have a hard battle ahead, and we could probably adopt to normal American branding to some extent, which means it's not entirely socially conservative, but it's not entirely socially liberal. And as for personal interests, I think sometimes people are on welfare or benefit in some ways that they would not in a libertarian society, especially police officers who are working for the state or military officers or contractors or whatnot. So I definitely think that's an impediment to libertarianism. What would you say to that, Professor Bloch?
1: Well, that's a very interesting theory, and I sort of agree with you half uh, halfway. I think you're making very good points, but... To me, libertarianism is neither left nor right. And I don't think that uh, we are rejected only because we're seen as hippies and druggies and whatever, because we also have right-wing views. We uh, favor uh, gun uh, rights. Uh, we, we favor uh, free enterprise. We favor things that conservatives like. So I don't like this left-right spectrum uh, where you know uh, the lefties are on one side and the righties are on the other side. Where are we? We're not on, on that spectrum at all. On economics, we agree much more with the conservatives uh, that they are not as good as they should be on on, on uh, economics, but they're better than liberals and on personal liberties like uh, uh, legalizing prostitution or legalizing drugs uh, uh, the lefties are not as good as they should be. They're not as good as libertarians are, uh, but they're way better than the conservatives. So I see us as neither of the left nor of the right, and uh, branding, uh, we have to brand ourselves, I think, as libertarians, and we have to reject the left and, and we have to reject the right. Sometimes people say that, um, libertarians say that we are uh, socially liberal and uh, economically conservative, and I think that's uh, a good first thought, but it's only a first thought because we are way more uh, economically uh, uh free enterprise than the conservatives and way more uh, uh in in the direction of liberty on personal uh issues than than is the left um, so you know another you sort of raise the question well what 's the best way to uh, promote liberty if I could you know put words in your mouth and my answer is there is no best way to promote liberty uh, and my my exhibit a here is uh who are the two people who uh, are head and shoulders over everyone else in terms of the number of people that they've converted to liberty? And my answer to that question is Ayn Rand and uh, Ron Paul. And Ayn Rand and Ron Paul had almost opposite uh, branding and almost opposite demeanor and almost opposite personal uh, uh, characteristics. For example, Ayn Rand was not a person to suffer fools gladly. She was, um, I won't say nasty, but she was acerbic. Whereas Ron Paul is sort of a sweetie pie. If if you called Ayn Rand a sweetie pie, she might smack you. Whereas Ron Paul isn't going to uh, reject that. Ron Paul is personally very, very uh, sweetie pie-ish. So from this, I draw the conclusion that there is no one right way to do it. Ron Paul did it in one way. Ayn Rand did it in almost the opposite way and yet the two of them were the most successful in terms of uh, converting people to libertarianism. I might put Milton Friedman in, in third place in terms of numbers of people. Uh, I think that uh, Murray Rothbard and, and Ludwig von Nises were way better libertarians than, than um, uh, Milton Friedman. But just in terms of, uh, and most of what they did was more intellectual. They didn't convert masses of people. Milton Friedman did. He had a gigantic megaphone. He could be in the New York Times any he wanted on tv anytime he wanted and he had a a, also a distinct personality and a distinct way of branding than ayn rand or uh, ron paul so my advice on the branding issue is do do whatever you know do your own thing do whatever is the most fun uh raise the issues that are the most fun uh My book, Defending the Undefendable, was sort of uh, rejected by many libertarians because it was sort of a hard sell, you know, taking extreme cases and saying libertarianism even applies in these cases. And uh, people were saying, well, I should have been more soft. I should have said, well, instead of privatizing highways, let's privatize the post office. You know, let's do it gradually. uh, What is it? uh, Honey gets more bees than uh, vinegar. Well, sometimes vinegar gets more bees. Ayn Rand was vinegarish. And she got a lot of bees. so I say there's no one right way to do it. Everyone should do what is the most comfortable, what they enjoy the most, because we're supposed to have fun in this life, and we're supposed to have fun in the libertarian movement. So my advice is go thou and have fun and promote liberty in any way that you enjoy.
0: I agree. I think do you is ultimately the best way, because... Considering how much there is like art and diversity in what a lot of people appreciate or even what a few loyal fans appreciate, I think there's a case to be made that some approaches will work well with some and not with others. But either way, many approaches are acceptable. So a big tent libertarianism is sort of warranted. What do you think?
1: Oh, I agree with you entirely. I couldn't uh, couldn't have uh, expressed it better than that. Yes, we should each do our own thing uh, to ape the uh, lefty hippie's way of uh, living. Uh, I, I agree with you entirely.
0: So when you were first into the libertarian movement, when did you first meet Murray Rothbard?
1: Well, I was in graduate school at Columbia, and uh, Larry Moss, a fellow student of mine, kept saying, you got to meet this guy Murray Rothbard. He's an anarcho-capitalist, and I was sort of a Randian then, and I didn't want to meet him. Because, you know, anarchism was crazy, you know, crazy chaos, you know, people would be fighting in the street, whatever, there'd be no cops, Uh, you know, uh, nobody would respect anyone's authority. And then finally, his roommate, Jerry Wallows, uh, and Larry Moss ganged up on me, I remember it was uh, on Broadway outside of Columbia. And they insisted that I meet Murray Rothbard, and finally I met Murray. And uh, he was uh, he was my mentor, my friend, my main man. Uh, he converted me to anarcho-capitalism in about 10 minutes using the sort of uh, uh, ideas of um, uh, Henry Hazlitt. Uh, the, the point is profit and loss, and why do we have pretty good shirts and shoes and, and apples? Well, because if you don't make good shoes and shirts and apples and pens and desks and cars... You go broke, and uh, you have to go do something else, and if you do a good job, you can make profit and expand. And he said, well, why couldn't this apply to courts, to armies, to police? And um, it was very shocking. And, um, you know, in about 10 minutes, I saw it, and then in a, for the next year, I read uh, everything that he had written, and not only him, but uh, people like uh, Lysander Spooner and other anarcho-capitalists and um and I was converted. I'm now a believer that uh, that government is best which governs uh, least, and that government is even better that governs not at all. Why? Because government is per se a violation of the non aggression principle. The non aggression principle says don't grab other people or their property without their permission. The government says hey, we're going to tax you whether you agree to it or not. And taxes are not like club dues. I mean, you, you go and you join the golf club or the um, chess club or the tennis club, and you pay dues. That's fine. But you've agreed to do it. I didn't agree to be part of the U.S. government club. There's no such thing as a U.S. government club. It's not a club. It's a coercive uh, enterprise which initiates violence against people who who won't pay taxes. And, you know, why should I pay taxes? well, I know a good reason I should pay a taxes because if I don't, I'll go to jail. But that's hardly voluntary, and the uh, libertarian movement is really a, a voluntarist movement, and, and the government is not a voluntary institution.
0: And speaking of taxes, I think you've argued in the past that you, we should privatize roads and highways because they would do a much better job in that realm than, say, the government funding and building roads. I would generally agree. I'm sure that a lot of good can come out of private road building, but some people will say, oh, what if they charge too much? Only rich people can go on those private roads and poor people can't. Rather, let's have a government funding the roads so at least anybody could go on playing the poll tax, paying whatever tax, but technically under this rule, anybody could walk on the road.
1: Shut up. (laughs) I'm kidding. This is the general problem, what about the poor? And it applies to everything, not just roads, but how about shirts? Why should we have private shirts? Shirts? Why shouldn't the government make shirts and give them out to everybody? If, if we had private shirts, the poor wouldn't be able to get good shirts or enough shirts. No, no, no. Uh, when government is involved, uh, it creates poverty. Uh, when private enterprise is involved, uh, even the poor are richer than they would otherwise be. Look, uh, the poor in the U.S., which is a reasonably free enterprise country compared to others, they're better off than middle-class people in, in, in I don't know, Venezuela, North Korea, uh, China, wherever. Well, China has now become more free enterprise. So I think that uh, it would, uh, poor people would do a lot better uh, with private shirts and private highways and private shoes and private everything. Uh, than they would if uh, the government gave it out. The government gives it out to the rich people anyway. I mean, in Venezuela, uh, the rich people, the people connected with the government, are getting food, and and, uh, the poor people are not getting any food, not getting any toilet paper. It's a very bad situation. Also, uh, my estimate is, you know, some 40,000 people die on the highways, rich and poor, and my estimate is that... um, If we had private roads, uh, we'd be much safer. We'd be saving a lot of lives, poor and rich lives. So uh, a lot of rich and poor people are now dying on the highways because of government highways. And also, uh, private enterprise can build roads a lot cheaper. And uh, when you can build roads cheaper, the prices that you charge will be lower because of profit and loss considerations. So I think not only the poor, but everyone would be much better off if we privatized um, Highways.
0: I would agree, and I also think this privatization, as you mentioned earlier, could apply to courts and armies and police. For example, in the movie RoboCop, directed by Paul Verhoeven, who is in no way a libertarian, it depicts like a corporation creating a robot out of the dead remains of a killed police off of a slain police officer, and then RoboCop he effectively fights against crime, and a lot of left-wing commentators on the movie sort of understand it as satire and an example of where we should not go, and I think the movie itself sort of goes in that direction, but at the same time, it's telling that Paul Verhoeven's movie, for example, it shows RoboCop doing a lot better than any of the cops that have done in normal police force.
1: Well, I'm delighted uh, with the movie, and I don't think it's satire, or at least I wouldn't look upon it as satire, But I think uh, we could uh, go further, uh, dig deeper, uh, look at other considerations for privatizing police. First of all, uh, what the public police are now doing is uh, half of the stuff they do, well, I don't know half, but part of what they do is legitimate. Namely, they stop murderers, they stop rapists, or at least they try to find out who the murderer is and then uh, go get them. Uh, on the other hand, another big part of what they do is uh, violating rights of the citizens, like putting uh, prostitutes in jail, putting people in jail for using drugs. We should uh, legalize all these victimless crimes. Whereas private police would have a very big incentive to stop murder and rape and theft and stuff like that because the customers would want them to do that, whereas they would have very, very little uh, incentive to stop prostitutes who are maybe working uh, miles away from where they are. I mean, prostitution is legalized in Nevada, and it's legalized in many European cities, and you don't have uh, any crises uh, about that. And uh, we used to have, um, what is it, uh, prohibition of alcohol, and there was mayhem there, and the cops would put people in jail for uh, you know, making beer or wine or something. And now, happily, they've stopped it, but they're still doing it with drugs. Another point is, If a a private detective agency or a private police force does a good job, uh, they will satisfy customers and be able to make a profit. And if they do a bad job, they will lose out. Whereas suppose, uh, I don't know, the Detroit Police uh, Department does a bad job. Do they automatically lose money? No. So you're not going to get this um, uh, exit uh, on the part of inefficient producers. A third point is, do you know that there are now more private cops in the country than there are government cops? Uh, you have cops uh, being uh, uh, bodyguards. You have cops in shopping malls. You have cops in uh, high-rise uh, apartment houses. You have cops in uh, high-rise uh, uh, commercial buildings, making sure that uh, you know bad guys don't get in there. So uh, it, it seems to me that... Uh, what we should do is just move more and more in the, in the direction of mall cops and uh, further away from um, uh, government cops. Uh, yeah. Government cops are much less efficient, as I say, and that they do things that no cop should be doing in the first place.
0: I agree. And on my own campus, there's an unarmed public safety, so that's kind of like a private police.
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, I am teach at Loyola University, and we have uh, private Loyola cops, and I they carry guns, and uh, the the campus is uh, you know pretty uh, safe, very safe, I would say. Whereas out on the public streets, it's a lot less safe than uh, than on campus. Uh, because if uh, the the uh, campus cops at Loyola or at your school didn't do a good job, uh, students wouldn't come here. Uh, so you have that sort of uh, market um, incentive uh, to do a good job and and uh, not, um, you know, not worry about uh, irrelevancies.
0: So what about private jails and prisons, which a lot of left-wing people condemn? I think a lot of private prison things are crony capitalism, but would private prisons exist in some form in the anarcho-capitalist world? What do you think?
1: Well, in my view, um, if it moves, privatize it. If it doesn't move, privatize it. Since everything moves or doesn't move, you privatize everything and certainly including um, uh, prisons. But the problem with our prisons now is that all too many people are in prison for victimless crimes. Uh, if I were the president of the United States, uh, Donald Trump, what I would do is I would give a pardon to every prisoner who is in prison for a nonviolent crime. Well, not nonviolent because uh, uh, fraud is nonviolent, but it's a real crime. I should say for every non-real crime, namely all the victimless crimes. Anyone guilty of a sex crime between consenting adults or of a drug crime uh, between consenting adults should be freed immediately. Well, now, instead of having, um, I don't know, uh, 100% of the prisoners we've now got, I think uh, uh, we would now be letting out of prison, oh, more than 50% of all the prisoners. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, my understanding is that the people... uh, in jail for victimless crimes is greater than the people in jail for murder and rape and theft and you know uh, carjacking and and really bad things so that would take a little bit of the wind out of the sails of the left people who were uh, complaining that uh, there are too many people in prison but then uh, i think that you know in in the government jails whether it's private or uh, as you say crony capitalist because the private prisons now are just contracted out by the government in a real prison, what those prisoners should be doing is not just sitting around uh, with air-conditioned uh, TV rooms and, and weight rooms and basketball courts and tracks and handball courts and other things like that. What they ought to be doing is working hard. Uh, and, you know, right now I think it costs something like 70000 a year to keep a prisoner in prison, uh, something roughly akin to the Harvard um, uh, cost of um, uh, tuition and room and board. Look, uh, those prisoners shouldn't be – we shouldn't be paying uh, for prisoners. Rather, the prisoners should be working hard, oh, 16 hours a day, and the money that they create from working that hard should be given over to their victims. Right now, uh, uh, let's say a rapist uh, rapes somebody, and and, uh, the rape victim uh, has to go to the hospital, and she has to pay for hospitals, uh, and now he goes in jail, and and the rape victim has to pay twice through her taxes – uh, to keep the the prisoner in in a nice comfy prison, well, under free enterprise prisons the um, uh, the prisoner would be working really hard and paying her back uh to not that she he could ever make her whole again, but uh, at least uh, compensate her for some of the costs and and some of the misery that she went through, and similarly not only for rape but theft and uh, carjacking and kidnapping and and what have you so I would see a very different kind of prison system than the one we now have.
0: What about the death penalty? I remember Murray Rothbard had a pro-death penalty view for the most part when it came to murder, but then he argued that it would be within the victim's rights or the rights of the victim's survivors or family members with regard to deciding what the punishment should be. And so you not only have the death penalty, but you also have options for Tolstoy and complete forgiveness, some like complete slavery for the rest of that murderer's life or whatnot. What do you think, Professor Block?
1: Yes, I agree with Murray Rothbard on this, as I agree with him on 99.9% of everything. Uh, He's uh, a genius. He's uh, a gifted um, creator of libertarian uh, movement, pretty much. Um, I uh, think that what the murderer did was took the life of, of the victim. Now, suppose we had a Robert Nozickian machine where we could put the body of the dead victim into it and put the body of the live murderer into it and then flip a switch. And now the life goes out of the uh, uh, alive murderer and into the dead victim. Would we be justified in putting the alive uh, murderer into that uh, machine and flipping the switch and taking the life out of him and sticking it back into the uh, dead victim? You're Don tootin' we would. Because the first element of uh, libertarian punishment theory is that the, the the perpetrator has got to give back to the victim what he stole from him. And here he stole from him a life, and now he's giving a life back to him. And that seems to me to be poetic justice and uh, libertarian justice and justice in every other way that you can imagine. So I think that um, uh, this is a uh, very important uh Uh, way to look at it, namely the murderer stole a life and has to give it back. Now it's true we don't have this uh, machine, but you know in 10,000 years from now if we don't blow ourselves up before then, probably we'll have that machine. But we don't need the machine, uh, just uh, the uh, uh, possibility of it shows that uh, the murderer's life is forfeit. Now I agree that the victim, uh, if he's a pacifist and and he tells his heirs, look in case I'm ever murdered, forgive the murderer. Well, uh, you know, Look, if I steal your TV and and you uh, forgive me for it and say, okay, uh, block, you can keep my TV, well, that's the end of it. I didn't really steal it because I've got your permission uh, after the fact. So uh, same thing with murder. I think that the victim or the victim's heirs should be able to forgive the murderer. On the other hand, if the victim uh, doesn't want to uh, forgive the murderer or the victim's heirs don't want to, they can do anything Uh, with him up to and including killing him. For example, they could impose the death penalty on him, or they could, uh, have him uh, be a slave for the rest of his life and serving the heirs of the victim. So let's suppose, uh, I kill a, a man with a wife and three kids, three little kids. Uh, I should be, uh, uh, made to work for the rest of my life, if that's what the uh, wife uh, wants. And uh, with the money that I produce, uh, I should support her, because the husband would have supported her in any way. I owe her my very life, and one way to take my life away from me is um, uh, by making me a slave. Another one is to publicly execute me and charge admission and, and defray the uh, cost of the uh, widow now. Uh, it's only uh, I've sort of uh, allotted a half hour for you, and we've only got a minute or two more, so maybe one last question.
0: So, regarding libertarian Nuremberg trials, I remember you brought this up at one point. So, one point in your scholarship. So, what do you think that would look like in this current situation, or even in a global situation?
1: Yes, I, I think uh, if we, if and when we libertarians take over. Uh, we will um, be uh, trying uh, various people for uh, violating uh, libertarianism i 'm not a real big fan of ex I am a big fan of ex post facto law. A lot of people don 't agree with that uh, and we imposed ex post facto law on the germans uh, The Germans you know uh, during the nuremberg trials, we said, okay you, you and you, you were engaged in uh, evil acts, and uh, we 're going to punish you for it and their defense was what do you mean uh, evil acts? It was legal. According to the German law, we were supposed to put the Jews and the blacks and the gays in concentration camps and kill them and whatever. And we were just, um, you know, obeying the law. And the Nuremberg group said, well, that law is an illegitimate law, and we're going to punish you for following that law because it's a per se illegitimate law. Well, uh, what about those people who put other people in jail for, say, prostitution or drugs or or, uh, whatever? Well, you know, we have to look very carefully at them. We should subject them to a Nuremberg trial because they deserve it. Even though the law of the U.S. land was thus and such, the law of the U.S. was impermissible, improper, it violated rights. So, yes, I think that the Nuremberg trials is a very good thing. It established that the ex post facto law is okay. And uh, we should apply it uh, not just to the Germans, but to the Americans who are violating the law. Uh, people who put other people in jail for, say, prostitution or drugs or, or uh, I don't know, price gouging or anything like that. Uh, we should uh, look very carefully at them uh, and put them on trial and then see, uh, see what we have to do with them.
0: So, before you leave, I want to make another observation about foreign policy. I think we libertarians are generally non-interventionist. We don't intervene in the affairs of other countries and other nations as states, though private citizens are permitted to intervene on their own behalf, on behalf of those who are oppressed elsewhere. What do you think?
1: I agree. Uh, Take the case of the Spanish Civil War in 1936. There were people from the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere Uh, who, as private citizens, went into uh, Spain in order to fight the fascists. And that was good. And I think that it would be very bad if the U.S. had intervened in the Spanish Civil War. Unfortunately, the U.S. is intervening in the Syrian Civil War, and the U.S. is intervening everywhere else under the sun, practically. The U.S. has a, about 1,000 a military bases in about 130 different countries. And any time there's, uh, there's a tripwire, any there's a, a fight, a conflagration in whatever country it is, uh, somehow the U.S. is involved because we've got troops there what are we doing with troops in Korea? What are we doing with troops in Germany? What are we doing with troops in uh, in Japan? Uh, the troops should all come back home and uh, get uh, honest jobs, and the U.S. should stop being an imperialist power and intervening into the internal affairs of pretty much every other country on the globe.
0: I agree. So will that be the end of the interview, or did we plan for more? I'm just curious.
1: Out of the half hour, and the half hour is now up. Uh, but look, in a month or two or three, I enjoyed this very much, and I'd be glad to do it with you again. But uh, for now, I think we have got to close the interview.
0: Okay. So until next time, this has been the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, news, politics, and potentially all that is under the sun.